Hello, and welcome to another episode of Such a Nightmare Conversations About Horror. My name is Catherine Troyer, and joining me, as always, is Anthony Tresca. I'm joining you? What? For real? Get out. Stop it. That was the worst thing I've ever heard. Um, (laughs) Gosh, it's so bad. This is a podcast devoted to thoughtful discussions about that fine line between the horrific and the horrible, like Anthony's puns. I'll take it. Each episode looks at a specific horror text that is, for better or worse, giving us nightmares. And if my amazing pun didn't already uh, cue you in, this week we're going to be talking about the 2017 film Get Out. When we conceived this podcast, it was actually in part because of another Jordan Peele film, Us. Right. And it was the fact that when that film came out, you know, it was being praised and and really positively regarded by all these people. But there were a whole bunch more people who sort of like sneakily would ask each other, like, but what did you really think of the film? Uh, And it was that initial conversation when Anthony and I realized that despite what is oftentimes a very big difference in the types of films that we like otherwise. When it comes to horror, we have a lot in common uh, with each other, and oftentimes what we have in common isn't being matched by by the larger consensus. Um, And that was true for us, but it's not true for Get Out, because I think everyone just agrees that Get Out is a really good film. Yeah. I mean, there are some critics who knock it as being like, they're saying, they like, hit on particularly Jordan Peele and his directing. They're like, his directing is good, but it's the work of a first time director for sure. That's like the, if anyone is criticizing anything about Get Out, that is the criticism. But yeah, you're absolutely right. Get Out is kind of like universally beloved. It's got overwhelming positive response. Rotten Tomatoes has got a 98% from critics. Metacritic is an 85%. And it was nominated for four Academy Awards. So. That's just about as much of like a positive thumbs up from the industry as you could really expect to get. And it's interesting that you you mentioned the fact that the only real criticism people have uh, is potentially with the directing, because we've talked about the fact in our Us episode, which we encourage you to go back and listen to, mm-hmm. um, that, that it was the directing that made it so hard to criticize the film because there were so many beautiful directorial decisions um, but there were some problems with the story. And, and I think that, you know, this is an example, Get Out is an example of a film that has just a incredibly tight narrative um, yeah. that happens to also be pretty good, if not greatly directed, right? And I think yeah. that's the main difference. And uh, there, I did say most critics criticized if they were gonna criticize anything, his directing, but some other critics have also harbored criticisms against Jordan Peele's Oscar-winning screenplay for Get Out for saying that it has some third act structural problems, which I'm sure we can get into. I don't agree with those criticisms. I think that the third act is pretty great, as is the rest of the film. But I just want to be upfront about the criticisms that are harbored against this film. And if I were to make an argument for, for why Get Out, I think, works so well, it would be in part because this is the project that Peel was thinking about and working on and focused on 
for a very long time. And, you know, not that he didn't have us running in the background too, but there is something to be said for that first project um, of a screenwriter where it's that project that they've been kind of chewing on uh, for a while. And so I agree. Mm -hmm. I don't feel like there's a problem with the third act, but it is certainly a, a great departure from where people might be expecting it to go, right? Uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, this is something that Peel had been sitting on for a good long while. Uh, he had always like seen the connection between the horror genre and the comedy genres. He says that so much of it is pacing and so much of it hinges on the reveals. And so that his background in comedy gave him some, some sort of a, he calls it like a training for the making of this film. And he's had this idea, this desire to do something in the horror genre since, since way back in 2013, when he was shooting a movie with uh, Keegan-Michael Key, his frequent collaborator. Uh, he, was, he had this idea and uh, Keegan-Michael Key set him up with uh, Sean McKittery, who was someone who would eventually go on to produce Get Out with, because uh, Keegan-Michael Key was just like, Jordan's got this great idea. He's a horror fanatic and you've got to hear what he has for this pitch. And that pitch was for Get Out. So he's been like stewing on this idea. He's been particularly interested in the overlap between horror and comedy for some time now. And if you look at some of the scholarship that has come out about Get Out, it's important that you're making that connection because the scholars are as well. So I'm going to talk specifically in this episode about two different uh, examinations. One of them is super brief and one of them is a full length article um, on Get Out. So the two, two texts that I want to reference is W. Scott Poole's Monsters in America. Mm -hmm. And then an article by Cami M. Sublet uh, called The House That White Privilege Built in an edited collection called Horror Comes Home. And the reason I think that, you know, you set us up nicely for this conversation about the scholarship is that both of them immediately juxtapose Get Out with Look Who's Coming to Dinner, mm -hmm. which, you know, is a comedy and maybe the worst ways a comedy should be, uh, you know, because it shouldn't be funny, this idea of a family being traumatized uh, by their child bringing home a non-white uh, lover, right? That shouldn't be a traumatic issue. But both of these articles say, you know, you can see a lot of similarities, not only in terms of the premise, but in terms of, of how some of the scenes are presented and how both works make it so that you're not sure if you should be laughing or cringing. Uh, and that really is that fine line between comedy or horror, right? Should you be laughing or should you be, you know, shivering? And uh, Get Out says, yes, maybe you're yeah. laughing, but you're laughing because you're really like, horrified on a profound level yeah sometimes laughter is the only response you can have to a situation that is just so overwhelming you just don't know what to do so you laugh at it even though that's not probably the most correct response <laughs> and i think what i appreciate about get out is that he lets us begin there but he refuses to let us end there right so comedy wants you to end with that laughter and if you have a, a profound thought fantastic but Get Out is, is by situating itself within the horror genre saying, you know, you can start there, but by the end, you need to be horrified about what's happening. And if you read um, W. Scott Poole's book, Monsters in America, so he spends this whole book talking about, you know, America's obsession with monsters. And then he devotes the last three pages-ish to Get Out. This is the last three pages of his conclusion. And, you know, it's interesting that he's in a book about monsters is, is choosing to bring in Get Out. 
But what he says is that, I, I love his language, he says, something dark from the American past slithers into the film. Uh, and so he's got a lot of these sort of descriptions about uh, how, you know, in this in this movie, racism is the, the monster. But what I appreciate about his reading is that he takes it culturally. He talks about in 2014, uh, the shooting of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri. He mm -hmm. talks about Black Lives Matter. And then he talks about several uh, really current uh, horror texts that are being created by African-American writers and, and creators such as Lovecraft Country, which is going to be soon-ish on uh, yeah, HBO. coming out on HBO Max. Yes. Yeah. Uh, the Ballad of Black Tom by Victor LaVale, as well as Victor LaVale's uh, graphic novel Destroyer, which is a, a retelling of the Frankenstein narrative, but set in, in a racially tense America. And he, he ends by saying, today in an America decidedly not, quote, post-racial, artists, activists, and scholars seek to wrestle away tales of horror from social and political forces that would use them to legitimize individual and state violence against marginal people. But those forces have been emboldened rather than quieted in recent years. We have learned to live with our monsters, our most vicious dead-eyed terrors. Right, so he's really kind of tying it in. So it's interesting that he starts with talking about, look who's coming to dinner, and then, you know, he takes all these, like, sharp turns to show us that, you know, this is something we're still wrestling with. The the other piece by Cami M. Sublet actually goes all the way back and talks about uh this book called Little White Houses by architectural historian Diane Harris mm -hmm. that looks at how, um, and this is a quote, post-war domestic environments became poignant ciphers for whiteness, affluence, belonging, and a sense of permanent stability. And goes on to also use this metaphor of monsters to say, thus the monster in the film is racism, but the tentacles of that monster are the attempts of liberal whites to ensnare and possess Chris and other black men and women. And, mm -hmm. you know, she, in her article, talks about Peel intentionally set the film uh, in upstate New York, as opposed to the South, in, in an effort to kind of remind us that it's not just the South that has problems, it's America, which, of course, is something that I think, you know, right now we're really forcefully being reminded of. Yeah, and I think it would have been particularly, if we want to place ourselves back when Get Out first came out back in 2017, this would have been really the first horror film of the Trump administration uh, because Trump would have just gotten inaugurated in late uh, January of 2017. And, so, and this film came out in March of 2017. So this is really that first word on a uh, criticism of a lot of the racial relations that have been, I don't want to say, they're not the first time that they're present. Racial tensions and this horrible systematic racism has not gone away in America. It's been here since our beginning and it's still here. We're still grappling with it to this day as the protests of Black Lives Matter and other organizations are revealing to us right now that we're currently going through that it's still not gone. But this would really be that first, uh, the first response. Jordan Peele got there first. And not only did he get there, but he made some important decisions about the film because of when it was produced. So let's, let's talk right. about the ending of the film, the theatrical version versus the ending he had originally envisioned. Yeah, I think this is a great place to talk about, like, 
just the effect of the Trump presidency and the election of Trump had even on this film. So this is really the first film, horror film specifically, uh, about race also specifically. It's a lot of specifics, yeah. but just go with me here. Um, but it's the first film to be tailored to what was happening in America, specifically with Trump and specifically with the racial tens tensions that a candidate and a president-elect like uh, Donald Trump naturally uh, unearthed in American culture. Uh, because he, Peel, as I mentioned, he's had this idea since 2013. Uh, that was all under the Obama administration, though, which is decidedly a very, very different administration, both from the policies they enact and also just from like the way they looked. Obama was an African-American. Donald Trump is a white racist. And not just not just what the presidency looked like, but how we interpreted our world based right. on who was in charge. I taught a class during most of Obama's era that was called Cultures of America. And one of the number one lessons that I had to constantly drill into to the students, because I felt that forcefully about it, was that we are not a race, racist free or anti-racist nation. And there was uh -huh. a lot of like, but we have a black president, period, that end. Yeah, like this this idea of post-racism America. Yes. It was one that was really popularized by uh, people to, under the Obama administration, particularly even uh, Jordan Peele has talked about this, as well as a lot of other black scholars have talked about this, this idea that after Obama got elected, that the black experience being black had an advantage. You were like given, it's this idea that affirmative action is the only, has been so much more helpful to African-Americans than, uh, than it is for white people and white people are now being hurt and it's bad to be white now because look at, look, a white person's not president anymore. It's bad to be white. And so the ending that he originally created, um, which is markedly different from the theatrical release edition, right. um, shows Chris killing Rose. Yep. Strangles her. Jumps to six months later. And then he goes to prison for it. And so would you describe the that scene between Rod and Chris and then what Peel had to say about it? Yeah, so I watched the film and then I watched the... Uh, deleted scene, this alternative ending. And then I watched it with Jordan Peele commentary over the top. And it was really interesting to hear him talk about this scene and ultimately why he didn't include it in the theatrical release of the film. So it jumps to that six months later where they're in jail and Chris is not looking at Rod. They're not making eye contact uh, while he's trying to like reason with him and be like, I'm gonna get you out, I'm gonna work. And then eventually Chris looks at him and says, uh, not, he's like, basically, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but he's like, it's not worth it. I'm not getting out. This is what the system is, is designed to do. But then he says, I beat it. And Jordan Peele uh, is talking about how this is referring to when he went back to save Regina, who was the woman, the African-American woman who was working at the house, who had the, the mind of the grandmother in her. When he went back to save her, he was freeing himself and his soul from this burden that had been weighing on him since he didn't do anything about his mom's death. So even though he was trapped, literally, he was freed spiritually. But then Peel also talked about why they changed it because uh, saying that we're still racist in 2017 was not as much of a gut punch as it was in the Obama administration. Saying 
hey, we're still a racist country that was founded on racism and still has racism in our everyday lives. Under the Obama administration was kind of unheard of, but now because of the election of Donald Trump and everything that the world was going uh, through, saying America is racist was no longer as much of a hot take as it was when he was originally conceiving the film during the Obama administration. And so he talks about the fact that, you know, he realized that what we need now is is a hero, right? And more right. of a happy ending. Um, and of course, it's not a happy ending because we see that he may be driving away, but the system still exists and the society will find another way, right? So it's, it's definitely not a, a super happy ending, but it is the ending... Yeah. That I think you're right that we needed because that's not where we needed the the gut punch to be what we where we needed it to be remains this idea of a we are so much closer to our history of slavery than we've ever envisioned or we've been willing to acknowledge and b that is equally as true for white liberals as it is for a sort of obvious racist signs such as the KKK right that that right. we as a nation are are dealing with this monster um and so yeah i think it's what i like about that and what i think is important is that sometimes this film uh, by jordan peele but also by just sort of um scholars is referred to as, as a social thriller right <laughs> and i think that this shows to go back to something we've talked about a lot and that is that a horror film is a product of its time and it should be a commentary on its time and peele was willing to alter the ending of his film to ensure that that aspect of horror was communicated. And I just, that makes me so happy because a lot of times when you see alternative endings, it's either things that don't make sense anymore because they cut out a whole bunch of scenes in between, or it's just right. the director being like, I don't know, we could end it happy, we could end it sad, who cares? Let's find out what the audience likes. But Peele's like, this is what the audience needs. This is what America needs. Um, yeah, he was like, America, after, and this is Peel talking about it, several high-profile police shootings of Black people, Peel had said that we're the conversation and this discussion around race had become more woke. And after gauging the reception to the original ending at test screenings, he just he decided it needed that more happy ending. But he was insistent on keeping a moment where the audience believes that Chris is about to be arrested because he thinks that would preserve the intended reaction that the audience is supposed to have to that ending. And it's true because there are lots and lots of horror films um, where oftentimes our, our final girl, right, um, mm -hmm. is, has just, you know, killed the bad guy, right, and has, is covered in blood and gore of hers, her friends, the, the killer, and at, the, and at the end of a lot of these movies, there's a scene where someone drives by and picks them up. And right. sometimes it's someone who's driving by and picking them up and is going to be themselves evil. And sometimes it's the rescue. But in none of those films, do you worry, oh, I, I wonder if this person's going to go to prison for these crimes, right? Like, I, I wonder if they're going to have to face this system that is going to immediately assume that they are guilty. Um, yeah, Jordan Peele says that exact same thing in the commentary. He's like... Think about it for two seconds. The house with all the evidence has just burned down. It's a African-American man who the police have just walked up on, on him strangling a young white woman who has been shot. Yeah. What do you think is gonna happen? And there, there are, I can think of, for example, the, the not so fantastic descent 
2, right? So The Descent was a lovely film. The Descent 2 is a bit rough. In that film, the police are like, I don't know, lady. Everyone that you're with is dead. I think you might be responsible. But that's one film, right? One out of how many? And so, yeah, I think that by keeping that sort of moment where we're going to assume that he's going to have to, quote, pay for his crimes, um, it reminds us, oh, that's not okay, right? That's not an okay system that we operate in. And then we can still yeah. have a happy ending. I, I remember watching that ending. Uh, I, I saw Get Out the first day it came out in March 2017. Uh, my friend and I, I went to the theater and we were the only two white people there, uh, which was very shocking for our small, I was from a small East Texas town where it's far more predominantly white than it is any other minority group. Uh, but this theater was completely sold out and it was almost entirely African-American uh, people with my friend and I being the exception. And as we get to that final scene, the reaction when the police lights came on was like nothing I had ever experienced before. Everyone in that theater knew that the police showing up was not a good thing, universally terrible. It just, this situation was dooming for him. And so he's, Jordan Peele's definitely still got that intended reaction and that intended just thought of like, because it's so normalized to just assume police and film, good. They're here to save, they're here to help. We've seen so many like police films in which they're the heroes, they come in, they're the savior. But that is not the reality for a large portion of our population. So this audience reaction to the film was something that actually worried Jordan Peele as well. He talked uh, about this in an interview with the LA Times. He was worried about the film's chances of success because he said, what if white people don't wanna come to the movie because they're afraid of being villainized with black people in the crowd? Or what if black people don't wanna see the movie because they don't wanna sit next to a white person while a black person is being victimized on screen? And so he, Jordan Peele was acutely aware of what he was tapping into and how sensitive of a subject it was. And I, I too saw the film uh, in theater. And as I think is the case for a lot of film goers, right, it was a predominantly black audience. And so it did create a very different viewing experience for me. And I will forever be grateful for it because I was having to do the very things that this film is talking about. And that is, is I was having to think twice about my bodied reaction to things uh, in light of this, of the environment that I was in. Right. So mm -hmm. I was always needing, I was always making sure, you know, I didn't want to be laughing if it didn't feel like the entire collective was, was laughing. Yeah. Um, and except for the one scene that, that is probably one of my favorite minor scenes, right? Like a scene that doesn't actually matter. And it's that moment where Rose is wearing headphones and she's eating um, Fruit Loops and she's like on the hunt for the next, the next person she's gonna, um, you know, catfish mm -hmm. and victimize, and it just cracked me up because it was like, you could hear Peel saying, "What would be the whitest thing that a, the whitest person could do?" And it's eating yeah. dry cereal while listening to your iPod, uh, and that cracked me up because like I was so happy to see this ridiculous depiction in a film that is talking about why we need to be really careful about ridiculous depictions. Yeah. Uh, and so it was just kind of a great moment to experience with an audience that was primarily very different from me. And that added something that I, I wish we could always experience horror films um, in such a way. It's interesting to bring up the character of Rose in the, in this manner, because she was specifically curated to be a subversion of the white savior trope. 
which if you don't know, the white savior trope is a film and it's a, it's a trope that happens in film in which there are a lot of white characters that are being portrayed as evil, uh, but there's this one really good white person who steps up and saves the day for minorities and is a really great bloke. Well, Peel and Allison Williams, who play Rose in the film, uh, decided they did not want to take that approach with Rose at all. They framed her as a teenager who was stunted through emotional development. She's not the victim of indoctrination, hypnotic or uh, Stockholm syndrome, but this is directly from Allison Williams. She's simply evil. Uh, after her intentions are revealed, her previous soft and welcoming appearance becomes a vision of cold elitism with uh, hunting wear, a white dress shirt and sleek ponytail. And she even hangs photographs of her ex-partners on her wall, like hunting trophies. And it just, it, it's that attention to detail uh, in all manners that just makes it so, such a good subversion. And we've talked before about Peel's awareness of of where his film is sitting in, in a cultural context. But I think here is also another good example of Peel being very intimately aware of where his film fits within a cinematic context. Because we have films like White Zombie and I Walked with a Zombie, where the whole point is, is that we have this delicate, soft female, white female, and oh no, this scary, monstrous black men are encroaching upon her delicate, soft sensibilities. Right. And, you know, that that is some of our earliest American horror and so we get to see, like, that, that premise being played out at the start, right? Of, like, here's this delicate, soft female, white female. And then we get to realize that she's none of those things. Um, and that she's actually, like you said, not, she's evil. She is not a product of this and therefore a victim, too. She is a monster as much as is, is racism. And I think yeah. that's really, really important and it's important for it to be that way with the love interest, right? We need to understand that, that this is something that we should be aff uh, affronted by because of the fact that there's not a single reason that she should be the way she is, right? No. We can't be like, well, at least at the end, though, she realized that, you know, he's a person. She doesn't care. Um, nope, and, not at all. And so in some ways, I think, you know, that's spot on. She's perhaps the most evil character because she's the one who understands that Chris is a, is a real person who has spent months wooing him or at least weeks. Right? Yeah. And she says, she says uh, that he was one of her favorites. So she even suggests within the context of the film itself that she did care about him, but that ultimately she doesn't care because she doesn't think of him as enough of a human or as a real person to really care. He's more like an animal to her. And that's just how, twisted and evil this character is it is so hard i think for the vast majority of americans to understand what it would have been like to truly believe that someone was a piece of property but this film shows that that we are systemically still doing that mm -hmm. right we may not be doing that on an individual level but the the rose character allows us to see how how easy it is um 
you know, for that to still exist in our society. And then this and then the white liberal part of it. Right. I would have voted for Obama a third time if I could have shows us that it is also easy um, for you to still be trapped in this belief that you can own people or own their experiences, um, even if you consider yourself to be abhorred by the idea of slavery. Right. And and racism. Yeah. And Jordan Peele really gets right to the heart of this, saying the real thing at hand here is slavery. It's some dark shit. And addressing the systematic part of this, the just how all-encompassing racism and slavery and this horrible treatment of marginalized groups is, was, and continues to be in America. He says that the character of Hudson, who is the blind man who bids for Chris and ultimately wins wins the right, I'm doing air quotes there, um, to take his body away from him. And he said, uh, Peel talks about how he should be in theory the farthest away from being racist because he's blind, but he still plays a part in the system of racism. And the way it manifests in this movie is, yeah, a guy who believes that the eye of this black man is better would make him a better artist, this black artist and being black is uh, not being black is what's separating him from being success or failure. And so even in this guy who is blind, you're still seeing systemic racism emerging. And I would argue that one of the most effective ways that Peel reminds us of this systemic issue and that this is something that goes beyond just, you know, a cult of, of evildoers or whatever is, is through some really intentional decisions of setting and, and set design. Mm -hmm. So Sublet talks about the fact that the house very clearly, you know, brings forth imagery with its columns and, and with its wide uh, lawns of, of the South and plantations. But mm -hmm. I actually want to talk about, um, more specifically, the way that Peel makes everything, every place, as well as every scene, feel like it could happen in your home. So the the bidding scene, right? Uh, you know, it, it doesn't feel dark because it's happening outside in, the, in a bright daylight, right? And it's kind of got some some cheerful music going on. But perhaps... Everyone's the, holding up bingo yeah, cards. Every, yeah, and, and everyone's dressed, you know, in their Sunday finest. And, and it just feels... Um, you know, like something that you could easily find yourself participating in. But I think for me, the scene that showed me that, that Peel is truly a master of the craft is his, his set design for the basement. Um, because mm -hmm. it would have been so easy to have the entire basement look like uh, the, the surgery room, right? Um, you know, if, if you're going to have a basement of torture and, you know, brain transplants, why would you bother to make a room that's going to have, you know, this like nice little ping pong table and a little old fashioned TV. Right. Mm -hmm. But the reason that we have it, um, is because it should feel like something from the 1950s ish, right? It shouldn't feel like something that is outside of our scope or really outside of our lifetimes. Um, it should feel familiar and it should feel comfortable. And the fact that that is the site uh, where we understand just how, how seriously broken the system is, we should be making that, that uncomfortable connection. And and I think that Peel does that in a fantastic way that I think other films, like, for example, the Hostel franchise, where they have, you know, like a clear warehouse where you're like, ah, evil happens there, right? But by making it this domestic space, 
uh, we're forced to confront some really important truths that, again, are 100% dependent upon Peel's eye as a director. Yeah. And this is all established in the in the cold opening in the very beginning of the film, uh, in which you see Lakeitha Stanfield, who incredible actor. He's gone on to do a lot of really important films by himself. One of my favorites. I love, I'm just giving a bit of shout out here. Sorry to bother you. If anyone hasn't seen that film, I would suggest watching it immediately. He is amazing in it. And that film is incredible. A little weird, but uh, very good. Uh, and back, back to the scene at the beginning. Get out though. Uh, you see him there and it's just one long top shot and you're just seeing him walking around this suburban neighborhood. And then you see him get kidnapped by this car that you see coming, you see turn around, you see following him. And because of that, Jordan Peele is training the audience to be afraid of what they can see. So much of horror is about this fear of what you can't see, what's not there, the unknown. But this film is not like that at all. Jordan Peele wants you to unlearn that, that uh, this fear of the unknown and what we what we can't avoid that has been kind of drilled into us by other horror films. Like, I mean, uh, earlier this year, we talked about The Invisible Man and just how well that film did at teaching you to be afraid of nothing. Well, this is the exact opposite. He wants you to be afraid of what you can't see, what happens in the light and what is what what people can get away with in plain sight. And he also wants you to be afraid of all the things that we have taught ourselves are the things we should want the most, right? So, so he is by setting it in, in the suburban environment at the beginning, by showing us a, a street in which anyone can drive up and nobody uh, looks out their window, thinks twice, right? He's mm -hmm. taking what we've decided is the American dream of, of, of owning your own home, having every house look the same, um, you know, having distance between you and your neighbors, but not too much distance. But he's taking all the things that we have said, this is what it means to be wonderfully American. And then he says, but that's not true. Certainly not for everyone, but also maybe for no one. Um, and so we, we get all of that in this beautiful cold opening that mm -hmm. shows what we talked about in us, right? Which is that Peel's a master of this like five to seven minute, depending on length, um, you know, story. He's he's capable of taking this snippet and communicating everything that needs to be communicated in it, putting it at the front and having it serve as a foreshadowing, but one that still adds to the narrative sort of independent in its own right. Mm -hmm. And our biggest complaint with us wasn't the cold opening with the the little girl and the the carnival because that again might be some of the most beautiful cinematography yeah that's a masterfully directed written acted scene the, the, but that's the third cold opening of four right in the film us and so i think the difference is is that in get out peel knew what we should be reaching our hand into and pulling out as the source of horror. And it should be a shared source mm -hmm. of horror for everyone. It's a complicated one. It's a complex one because it's not just slavery. It's slavery and the lingering racism, but also our systemic issues, but also white liberals, right? Like it's a complicated source of horror, but again, it's a very limited and focused one. Uh, and the end result in my mind is 
I don't know, do I want to say like a, a flawless film? I mean, I, I don't know. I can't off the top of my head identify something that I would immediately say prevents it from being gosh darn close to flawless, if not flawless. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if I can, I, I don't know if I can disagree with you. Yeah, and, and again, I'm sure there's something, right? Like if we were to spend, if we had like 48 hours where only task was to identify a flaw and we didn't get to eat until we did, I'm sure we could find something. But I think that this film, what makes it so powerful is that it's not just the film we needed at the start of Trump's administration. It's the film that we need now as we are nearing the end of at least his first round of administration. A lot of people have been revisiting this film because of this new wave of support for Black Lives Matter and these new protests that have continued to go on in the country and this new commitment or what seems to be a new commitment to people learning and educating. And this is one of the films that people turn to along with a lot of things directed by uh, Ava DuVernay, uh, Spike Lee is another one who people turn to. Uh, and this is one of those films. Jordan Peele clearly has something to say and I think it's something that can be helpful right now. And I also think that we owe that as horror fans, right, as horror scholars, we owe this film a debt of gratitude too, because it it was at the start of that of the, what I'm seeing as like the renaissance of horror, and and us being reminded that something can be horror and art, it can be horror and a commentary. Um, and it can be horror and, you know, a truly masterfully crafted film. Like, those are not uh, independent of one another. And that just, in my mind, will make this a film that I'm willing and ready to incorporate in as many, you know, discussions and classes and, and examinations as I can. Uh, because it's, it is that important, I think. Yeah, it's important. And I don't know if you can sense this from our conversation, but it's also... An a film that is kind of difficult to talk about because you have to be really careful. It requires a lot of self-examination. I mean, we're both two white people who are talking, having to talk about really sensitive matters of race, systematic prejudice and oppression against groups of people uh, to which we have not experienced. We are not a part of those marginalized groups. And so these are difficult conversations and they're messy conversations, and they are hard to do, but they're important. This is an important thing to be talking about right now, and probably forever, because it doesn't seem like, unfortunately, systematic racism is going away. It's not something that's going to just be uh, ended overnight. We can't turn, flick a light switch and just turn racism off, particularly in a country like America that is just, it was founded on it. One of the things that this film requires us to do is to remember that it's not only a complicated conversation, but that it's one that we can't ignore, but we also can't get rid of by saying things like, I would have voted for Obama a third time. Yeah. Um, and that what this film reminds us is that, you know, um, microaggressions are the, the baby monsters of us thinking that we have the right to take over 
a black person's body because microaggressions allow us to say things like, I bet you're really good at sports, um, which leads us to, you know, as the film shows, this belief that we can appropriate uh, black bodies for our athletic desires and feats, which, of course, we've seen um, through various people who, who say terrible things about their NFL teams. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. and, and that I think that that's what makes this film powerful is that it, it gives us this really profound obvious way of understanding racism because hopefully no one will be like yes we should have a secret society that will appropriate your body but it shows us that that can only happen if we've built a system where all of these little icky monsters can be lurking around um, and growing up to be this big all consuming monster yeah and it, I, I think it's really 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 important that the film doesn't focus on well, you said you said this earlier just like southern racists like people who are so clearly racist and who know that they're racist and just are like yep this is my way of life this is this is uh our history or whatever whatever justification they want to have for the racism they know it it's focusing on the white liberal elite someone who a group which has a lot of power and has not always done the best things with that power. In fact, they've done a lot of bad. And that's a hard thing to grapple with. And that is, it's because it doesn't, it can't be, it's not as easy. It's not as easy for people to wrap their head around as like racist bad. It's also like, well, a lot of things are, it's a lot more complicated than that. Like microaggressions are bad. Uh, just any, all of these systems that you knowing or unknowingly benefit from. It's, it requires a much deeper analysis than, and it's uncomfortable. It's hard. And Peel talks about the fact that the title of the film is a reference to an Eddie Murphy sketch where we, where there's sort of this idea raised that, that the white lived experience is often one of, of blissful, or oblivious, depending on which word you want to use, uh, mm -hmm. naivete, but that the, the black lived experience is about a smart paranoia. Um, and I would argue that this film is, is saying that too, though, that maybe the only way we can, can not live in the way that we're currently living is to get out of it. Uh, and that's going to mean actually exiting it, not, not just simply trying to make some, some little band-aid fixes here and there, but to create a new We're not space. just pay, paying lip service. Exactly. To things. But Which that we is, have to get out. We've got to, got to get out. We've got to have real radical change. We're going to continue our exploration of how the horror genre reminds us that elitism uh, in any form is, is highly problematic. But we're going to do it through a very, I think, in many ways, radically different film. And that is... Uh, 2000's American Psycho. So, we are very excited for you to join our conversation about American Psycho. And in the meantime... Uh, be sure to follow us on all of our social medias, which is linked to, in the description of this podcast. And be sure to share us with your friends and give us some ratings and reviews wherever you get your podcasts. And in the meantime, thank you so much and have a great day. <laughs>